Scott McNamara of What's New and Adaptive Physical Education. So previously in the first part of this podcast, we talked about the importance of veteran APE professionals being involved in the search process for APE faculty positions as we need to continue to have strong APE faculty in higher ed to have strong programming uh, moving forward and strong profession. Um, so, and it's also important for the remaining faculty uh, to remain on for a few years in order to mentor the new faculty member. Uh, that was all discussed. So in the second part of the podcast, Barry and Melissa, both from, again, from California State University of Long Beach, uh, explore strategies needed for a strong mentoring relationship in the veteran professor and the recently hired faculty mentee. Again, strong recommendations to listen to this if you're new or young and, um, looking to grow. Enjoy. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the need to, to continue to advocate for search committees and, and how to navigate that from the hiring process and also from the applicant process. And, and now let's talk about, I think our, an incredibly important piece is how do we develop strong mentors and, and then strong mentor and mentee relationships in our field, either, you know, in universities, but also just in our field. And again, I feel, even though I'm not at California State University Long Beach, that, that Barry has been a huge mentor for me. And I think that those things have been such, and you know, and there's many people in the field, which I, I really feel like I've benefited from. I'm sure Melissa has too, of like, you know, Susanna Dillon, Garth Timeson, Michelle Grenier, all these people just have been like, just amazing people in my life that have helped me navigate life and, and all these professional things. So I think that this is something that's really important to talk about. So before we even talk about like, you know, the important qualities and all that stuff, I guess like just, I'd like to hear from you guys just why you think this is an important topic for us to kind of broach. Well, you know, one of the things that early in my career that I just felt, why I fell in love with adaptive peas is every single person I ever met in adaptive P in higher ed or, or even in the public schools were just great. And uh, when I was a PhD student, uh, my mentor, Ernie Lang, took me to conferences and I'd meet these people and they would have conversations with me. They were genuinely basically interested in what I was about and I've always felt like AP is unique. It was a, it's a community. I've had a couple of department chairmen that, that I this is another like PR thing I did is I would bring them to the national AP conference when yeah. I would be hosting it. And they'd say, what is it with the I remember my first department chair says, what is it with you APE people? He says, you're all like get along, you're all friendly, you 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 connect, you know. And that was the first time I really thought about that. And I says, geez, you know, because there's some specialty areas where it's not like that. And so, I, and, and Ron French just had a tremendous uh, impact on my career. I mean, I just reached out to him out of the blue. I called him on the phone. He didn't even know who I was and told him I was interested in doing behavior management for my dissertation. And 35 years later, we're, you know, I'm still connected with him and we had this great writing relationship. And so, that just had a huge impact on me. And I, I see that over and over again. And that's, that's how our profession will thrive. And because if, if I help 
Melissa, then the program's going to be strong. I mean, I want to help Melissa anyway. Anybody that's that wants to work with kids with disabilities, they're they're a genuinely a good person, you know. And but from a you know, you could say selfish standpoint, I want the program to be successful. If Melissa's successful, the program's going to be successful. The state's going to be more successful. The profession's going to be more successful. And I think sometimes we have this ageism thing. A lot of us have this wisdom and things we can impart. Melissa's always been very respectful of some of the things that I say. You know, she doesn't always agree with them. And some of them, you know, like I, I look at things maybe a little differently. You know, even though we have this 30 year difference in age, I, I, we connect, you know, in a lot of ways and have a lot in common. But at the same time, you know, we will view things a little bit differently. But just really important that uh, for the from a professional standpoint, and it's just fun, like the research shows when you help others, you feel better yourself. I mean, there's research to support that, you know. So, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like some meditation guru, but there's, you know, research to, to support that. Oh. And so that's, that's what I would, I would say that why it's, why it's important. It's just important for our profession. But Melissa, what do, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. To not get lost in the field. Mo most places, you're an N of one. And so you need to find that mentor so you're connected to your program, to your area, or you know, if, you, if you're not connected, you're gonna potentially just be this revolving wheel of, oh, moving on to the next place because you're never feeling like, oh, this is home. Um, I think it's really important for the, the mentee to want to be mentored. And Barry and I have had this conversation that you know, the relationship that we have, not everyone could have because not everyone has those good listening ears. Sometimes it's it's like a, a coach and a player that the player's got to listen to what the, the coach says, but the coach also needs to have, you know, re respect with the players if they're telling them that something isn't going right. So it's sort of a two way street that, you know, he, you know, even though I haven't been at Long Beach State for 33 years, my, you know, my expertise also was really valuable. And Barry never said the, you know, the infamous, that's not how we do it here. He always had a very tactful way of, you know, talking me around to try something else in a different way. <laughs> um, and so it was more of a, a I guess, a, a teammate, you know, uh, he, he was like my, my teammates while, while he was there for three years. He had a, a chance to, to coach me up, to show me the way, and it made my transition here so much cleaner. I feel like I am a much, much better professional because of the opportunities I had to be led by Barry. It, it took me all of one week to put Barry in my speed dial. <laughs> you know, one of the things that um, I was excited because I've taught for basically 35 years before I was always an N of one. You know, I had pedagogy faculty I could talk to, but I really couldn't talk to them about really deep conversations about adaptive P and, and research and disability. And they kind of would look at it like anything with disability, they go, go see Barry, that's his thing, you know, that type of thing, which kind of bothered me, you know? Um, I mean, they're very supportive, they were great, but, you know, I always, in some ways felt like it was N1 and, and my, my mentors and my team was, I had to, you know, talk with Ron and Hester on the phone or connect with them and it was a different time. and so. 
I knew that I could learn a lot from Melissa. I also knew that the profession was really evolving and changing and it was really getting, you know, high tech and Zoom and everything and social media. And Melissa could bring all those things in that, you know, I couldn't really do as well. You know, it, it's kind of ironic when everybody says, oh, my God, you're you're retiring. And what's going to happen to the program? In some ways, the program's better off that I retired now because of the COVID, you know, because of um, everything's electronic and and zooming so it's kind of ironic but i don't tell too many people that i just say yeah you're, <laughs> you're right like no but but the other thing i think about do you want to get into like what are some qualities of mentors versus mentees i think we're getting into it already yeah yeah so we can just yeah kind of keep melissa going and, yeah. talked about being a good listener and how important that is you know the other thing i think is that it's time consuming like you know an important thing is you can have spontaneous conversations, but you also need to put time aside and say, hey, uh, on Friday afternoon, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about scholarship uh, and your three-year plan for research for the next few years. And so goal setting, a lot of people don't like to goal set, you know, and, and, and that's a critical part of, of mentoring is goal setting. The other thing I think is really uh, important is, so that mentor you know, they're given a lot of their time. They don't have to do that. It, it, it's time consuming. The other thing is you, you should be positive and you should be um, champion that person. But at the same time, you need to be able to give constructive feedback. And I always felt comfortable with Melissa. Like she, she didn't feel hurt. Like if I gave her constructive feedback and she knew it was coming from a good place. And, uh, um, and I was, I'm pretty transparent. I'm pretty East coast. And you know, I'm pretty, like I said, transparent about stuff. And, and some people that they have to get used to that. Um, I, I'd like to think, it, you know, I try to be a good listener. Um, oh, can I tell but, the RTP story? Yeah. So, so <laughs> let's talk about constructive feedback. Let's, let's talk about the RTP retention tenure promotion story. That's a great story. Oh, and I but tell it be be fair don't tell it the way tell it like I was positive when I was giving you the feedback so in the higher ed we have to put together a a big review on all that we've you know all that you've done for for scholarship for teaching uh for service and this was my first mini review and Barry you know I asked him to take a look at it and give me some feedback um, and he did all right. The thing was just blown up in red and he gave, he hands it back to me on my birthday. <laughs> Here you go. And pretty much said in, in nice berry words, this is bullshit. Try again. <laughs> well, she had gotten some, some advice from somebody else that, you know, how to organize it. Like I just said, this is how you need to organize it. It, it was well written, but it was just organized incorrectly. And I was just giving her how to organize it and stuff. And, you know, like navigating RTP and just organizing your papers and stuff. But then I found out, I, I walked into another faculty member's office after I'd had this hour long conversation with Melissa and the faculty member said, hey, um, did you know today's Melissa's birthday? And I says, I gave her the greatest gift you could give anybody, right? I helped her with her 10-year promotion file. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. What a, I, I felt really bad. Did you, you sing happy birthday to her when she was <laughs> over? So, 
but anyway. but honestly that criticism um though you know though it's you know feedback feedback <laughs> okay yes the feedback but it immensely immensely helped me because it only builds from there you know each year you do that rtp and next year i'm up for tenure and promotion and feel really comfortable going into it because of the foundation that very helps me lay so it 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 was, you know, really, really important and helpful. So thank you, Barry, for ruining yeah. my birthday. I think, <laughs> so just being a colleague, you know, yeah. like I wanted Melissa not to feel like she's some postdoc, you know, person. Like I, you know, be a colleague. One of the first things I did is I wrote uh, this long email about Melissa and sent it out to the AP community in Southern California about how she was coming in and, and, to support her, those kinds of things. And I always thought of her as a colleague. I was excited because like I said, I was an N of one for 35 years. I finally had somebody that when I said UDL, they'd know what I was talking about, you know, and stuff. So I, I you know, and I generally, you know, another thing I think a mentor has to have is I see some senior faculty, they have no empathy, like, like um, they don't remember what it was like when they were junior faculty. And, you know, I'll see people that, that are not really strong in scholarship and then talking about how this person needs to write more. And, and so I think as a mentor, sometimes you need to role model that, you know, like uh, for me to say, hey, Melissa, you need to write and I don't write at all. You know, I, I need to be a model for her. And then you need to get involved in the profession and I'm not involved in the profession. I'm not modeling, you know, appropriate behavior. Yeah. I, uh, one thing on the constructive feedback is I think that's so vital. I also think it's important to, for the mentee to right. kind of, like, I find myself craving it often, especially when you're an N of one and you're not maybe getting it. So when you're getting, you know, I'm, whenever I have a, like my meeting with my chair or something like that, I'm just, I'm like so ready to get, okay, what can I improve? What can I do better? And, and I, there's um, Brad Wiener, who's a AP teacher now in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, you're, this is like 10 years ago. Um, I watched him at a conference and I went out, or I was taking him back to his hotel or whatever afterwards. And this has stuck with me and I've repeated it to many of my students even. And he told me, he asked me, um, you know, what did you think of the presentation, right? And I said, you know, it was amazing. It was great kind of thing. And he like stopped me after and he said, you know, um, that's what a lot of people say. And like, you know, I, I really like, like, you know, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. And he's like, I really want to hear the ugly because if I hear the ugly, um, I can improve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that's just stuck with me. And I know like, yes, we have to be our niceties and all that, but that was a frame of mind that I almost try to have now was tell me the things that I need to know so I can improve upon because, you know, obviously if you get to the, this, time where you're getting, you know, offers and, and you're, you're a faculty member, you're doing something right, but we can always be better. So I think as a mentee, we have to have that frame of mind of craving the, or the best mentees maybe have that, that sense of, I want to, I want you to, your feedback and I want it. For to sure. It's yeah. like you learn more from a loss than you do a win. You yes. know, if you lose the game, you can really reflect, how can I improve? Um, whereas everyone just patting you on the back, great job, you're amazing. Well, that doesn't push you forward. Yeah, and, and you know what? That's something I liked about Melissa. You know, the other thing she, she believe it or not, when I was running the search, um, she had played sports 
you know, and like, I knew that she would be disciplined and she would be, you know, she's used to like uh, taking a loss or whatever, you know, I mean, we're making a bunch of sport analogies here, but there's, you know, there's something to be said about that. The Celtics and, are used to taking a loss. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to talk Careful, about it. Careful, fighting but, 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 you know, when we're talking about uh, feedback, you know, you can give them just like we teach our university students to give a feedback sandwich, like start out with something positive, give them some constructive feedback and then give them, you know, an end with something positive. You know, and I always tell my students, they'll say they'll use the word criticism and I'll say or shame. That's another thing like millennials <laughs> like to say. You're shame. I says, I think it's called constructive feed. I says, do you want a, a, a cheerleader or do you want a teacher? What do you want from me? You know? and stuff and, and uh, you you should try to be a little bit of both but at the same time yeah. you know they're here you're here you're here to learn and and not and um i think most people want to grow professionally and that's another thing about that i enjoy like the whole empathy thing it's kind of fun to watch young faculty uh climb that mountain you know, I remember when I was doing that and, and, you know, as you, over the years, you get kind of jaded sometimes, or, you know, there are times when there's an issue and they're excited about an issue. And I'm, you know, and I'm thinking, what decade is it? I was excited about that in 1978, you know, or whatever, but that's okay. You know, that's good. They're looking at it from an entirely different perspective and a different lens. And, and so empathy, I think is important and uh, just be, you know, being a good listener it's it's hard a lot of higher ed people are not good listeners it's it's challenging to do that but but melissa was always respectful she always had this move when she got real quiet i knew that she didn't really agree with me but she was being respectful so and i'd say come on melissa tell me <laughs> what how do it you is. really think <laughs> what do you really think one, one other point too though to make is that i think before you jump in you know on your given all this feedback on someone's RTP on their birthday, remember that Barry and I had like six months of a relationship prior to that. And right. I think that that's important too, um, that we had built up a trust and a camaraderie and, you know, it made it a lot easier to give some, you know, harsh, maybe not harsh, bad word, but you know, feedback. Some, some feedback that was necessary. Yes. Um, uh, it, you know, Melissa, and that's important too. Melissa said the most important word, like, is that you need to, just like when you're working in the public schools, you have to build a trust and a connection with you, with that, the mentor mentee have this, they trust, they connect. Like I can work around anything. As long as I trust the person and I'm fine with, you know, the, if they have some things that, that I don't agree with. I think communication style is, is important too, is that how you communicate and transparent. Um, Melissa and I have a, you know, in some ways, maybe our communication is a little different. Like she's, she wants to, sometimes she'll send me these three word texts. I don't even know what she's talking about, you know? And, and like my style is if I have to send an email, that's more than a sentence or two, I need to get on the phone and, and have a, a conversation with you, you know? And, and uh, to me, there's got to be a back and forth. And so our communication styles are, are a little bit different. And then sometimes you know, I'll say to Melissa, do you want the five minute answer? Or do you want the 50 minute lecture? You know, like how much time do you have? And, and there's other times when I'm going over something with Melissa and I can hear her like she's she's working on her computer while she's like listening to my uh, my response. 
and I have to say, hey, Melissa. <laughs> I got to know. Um, so, so Barry, I think um, sent, he sent a script kind of with some, some of the things that we're going to talk about. And I, I chuckled because one of the notes says, five, the two minute answer, the two hour answer. Thanks, Dad, for the lecture. So, I, think, I, I think that's uh, in reference to what you're just saying. <laughs> well, sometimes I would go off on some tangent where I'd talk about the history of adaptive P and I go, this goes back to 1965 when Dan Arnheim was here. You know, like she'll ask me something about the practical. I just, well, dating back, and I'll give her kind of like the history of the practicum when, you know, I could have answered it in like a sentence or whatever. But it's, you know, do you want the backstory or what? So I, I want to, you know, I think we we're talking a lot of the things that we wanted to talk about with this. I want to talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges in the mentoring and mentee process. Sure. Well, I mean, we, we, we've talked a lot about they both parties have to want to do it and, you know, being a good listener, that that type of thing. And uh, it's a time commitment. That, that's the other thing. And putting time aside to do it. And um, it's easy to just have a casual conversation. Um, I think if you say, hey, let's meet on a Friday afternoon for two hours and we'll talk about your three-year uh, research plan, or let's talk about next year, let's map out what scholarship you're going to be doing and how we're going to run this practicum. That's hard work. You know, that takes a commitment. And just the idea of being uh, transparent you know, and, and so I think those those things are are important. Um, I, I think I a challenge yeah. sometimes that new faculty come in and your hair is on fire and, you know, you just want to like do, do, do and, you know, change, change, change. But I think you really need to come in and respect the foundation. At least, you know, the program that I came into was very well established um, and you know, you needed to just maybe come in the first six months or the first year and just learn all you can about the program and not necessarily think that you have to change everything. And then maybe year two, I think I started putting my stamp on things where, you know, we started this, you know, we started social media and started doing some of those things. And, you know, Barry never once say, well, that's not how we you know, do it here. He was, he was open. Barry even has a Twitter now himself. <laughs> so Barry actually really sent a Twitter open. the other day like and, I hadn't and Barry sent was one really in a few open months. to change and that's <laughs> something that maybe you know not all faculty members are open to that you also have to be open to change as well because even though he'd done it this way for 30 years maybe we could you know do something via google forms rather than paper pencil and you know all would be okay still you know and, I, I yeah. Can I just share, like, I, I think an, a really big thing is that, um, you know, like this whole, the, the time commitment and everything, but one of the real challenges is I, I believe that when your meeting is that I thought a lot about is I had kind of a three-year plan. Like my plan was I'm going to spend the first year really focusing with Melissa on her teaching and her scholarship. And that first year, one of the things Melissa did that I was very impressed with is she sat in on my classes. She didn't have to do that. That was, that was time consuming. She sat in on the practicum. You know, she didn't get any release time for that. And I always said, let's 
focus on your scholarship. I got her involved in, in a lot of my scholarship and my grants, you know. Uh, and then that's, I didn't even talk to her about CTC advising and adaptive PE uh, till the second and third year. But by the time I left, I wanted her to be able to have every aspect of the program, you know, she'd experienced. But if I came in and just threw her like 30 years of, of stuff, but you know, Melissa's a fast learner. What took me like 30 years to learn, she learned in three years, you know, like <laughs> it took me like three, t 10 times longer to learn it than it did Melissa, you know. But so. I agree, Barry, if you were to like come in in year one and start, especially with this, you know, CTC, California teacher credential, and uh, it's a complicated, and it, it really did take me all of three years to learn what courses, what order, what sequence, um, because depending on whether they're an undergrad, are they doing it as an add-on? Do they already have a general PE? Well, what if they have an ed specialist degree or what if it's a multiple subject credential? Like that's kind of mind blowing. And Barry was really good about year one, I didn't do any advising. Year two, I started just doing the undergrads and then year three, I started tackling kind of all the um, grad students and the unique advising situations. And that was really, really helpful because it, yeah, that's, it's complicated. Isn't yeah, I, I didn't want to just dump everything on Melissa. You know, I see that sometimes with faculty, I take the junior faculty and just dump everything on them and they're not ready. You know, um, I don't think like, for example, you should be chairing a committee until you have tenure. You know, you can be on, you should be on some department committee. You know, I, I don't agree with everybody. Philosophically, I think like service-wise, you should um, be on some department meetings and, but not chair a, a thing. You know, it was a lot to ask like Melissa to chair a search, you know, her third year. I know I did when I was a junior faculty because <laughs> nobody else was going to do yeah. it. And, you know, but at the same time, sometimes you have to do some some things, but it's, you know, it's a lot to ask. That's why you want like, that's why you get 10 years. So then you, you have the time and, and you have the wisdom to do some of these things that you understand how the university works. It took me a long time to understand how the university works. You know, somebody when I was a junior faculty say, what does a dean do? I said, I, I don't know. You know, I know they, you have to go see them when you get interviewed. That's, that's about the only response I could add, you know. Some universities might be like that still, but yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, so moving, moving forward, what tips can both of you kind of offer to uh, a brand new APE faculty who's starting a new position, like what what advice as a mentor would you provide to the to a new APE faculty? Um, so the first thing I would do is say, like the minute you walk on campus, let's work towards getting you tenure. All right, let's work towards that. Um, I want you to look at tenure as not a roadblock, but a, and not a hurdle but as something so that you can grow professionally and you can re reflect on your career, okay? And immediately I'd like to sit down and let's have some discussions about teaching and your philosophy of teaching. And then let's talk about scholarship and let's talk about scholarship from a standpoint. Are you on in a writing team? Like one of the things I would say to them, I would never in, in the, you know, 40 years I've been writing, I've never sent anything out to a journal before I, I didn't give it to somebody else to read and edit. 
And that was one of the things I said to Melissa is everything before you submit it, give it to me or someone else and let me write it. Who are your writing teams? Um, as a junior faculty, get professionally involved so you can make connections with people. And that seems time consuming, you know, professionally involved with like say shape and the consortium, but you're gonna make these connections with other people and writing opportunities may come from that. And, but you gotta be careful about who you write with. Uh, sometimes you can get burnt. Sometimes um, somebody that's a full professor doesn't have the same timelines that you have, okay? And um, you, need to, you need to trust the people and know the people you're gonna write with. But as a junior faculty, sometimes you have to say yes to some things that maybe you shouldn't because you just never know what may come of that, you know? Yeah. You're not at a position yet to say no. I, I remember one time I had this opportunity as a junior faculty to get involved in developing fitness tests for the state of Kansas. And this guy, Bob Johnson, who was at K-State, who was close to retiring. And I was really thinking about not doing it because I thought that's gonna really be time consuming. And, and that's not really my research line. And I, I ran it by my wife and she just looked at me and says, you know, as a junior faculty and you got this, this senior faculty member from a, a research one institution asking you to do research. I don't know how you can say no. So, and a lot of good things came of it, you know? And so, so I think that's some general advice um, that I would give uh, a junior faculty member about being, you know, getting involved in scholarship, getting with the writing team, getting with people, collaborating. Yeah, um, on the writing team thing real quick, I think, I, cause I think that's a really good point about maybe full professors, not always, but sometimes are, you start working with them, their time frame is a lot different than yours. Sure. You might start working and everything, the referencing is from the nineties. That can also happen. <laughs> oh. uh, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying yeah. sometimes the literature kind of, you know, it, it, you know, and I just advise people sometimes like if when you're first going in the career, having a group of people that are maybe, you know, assistant professors, early associate professors, um, or even PhD students because they're hungry, you know, um, and, and that's the way that maybe you can be successful in those teams. Not that and not that full professors and stuff can't be very active and very responsive like yourself, Barry. But I think as a young scholar, I've seen a few people, I think kind of, like you said, get burned with not hearing back for three, four or five months on a manuscript that they're, right. you know, that's um, a good that's important to them. So I think that is an, an, a pretty uh, important um, thing. Uh, Melissa, and what do you think about for first year faculty? Yeah, first we'll start with research. Um, that, that first year, I know at least for myself, I didn't get too crazy or beat myself up too much about like data collection. Like I needed to find where my office was and you know, make these connections. So that first year that was at least, um, you know, Barry helped me navigate that. And then that first summer at, at camp, uh, that was when I collected my first data and you know, it, it was fine, uh, worked out well. From a research standpoint, figure out what your passion is. Well, you know, what, what drives you, what, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? Um, what's, as Barry likes to say, what's worth doing? What's going to push the profession forward? And, you know, make sure that your, your research line is falling in on that. Don't, you know, ha have that half 
have that research line and try not to be scattered all over, all over. Um, find that mentor who can review, you know, your everything. Like I, I've not submitted anything ever without, you know, Barry looking at it or another mentor looking at it. I think that's really important. Finding your research team, that's immensely important. But with your research team, if you don't have one, don't be afraid to, to cold call someone. I had uh, a fairly new assistant professor. She was in her uh, first year and she cold called me about research. She's you know interested in doing something on assessment and you know saw an article that I had done in Palestra and said, hey, can you help me with this? In the APE field, you know, you know the APE field. We're like, of course. You know, we don't say no to much. <laughs> and so don't be afraid to cold call people if, if you know that their line is similar to yours. Um, find a stats person. Barry introduced me to Ralph Rosenick, who the man, the myth, the legend. He's a <laughs> uh, he is a emeritus exercise science professor and a stats guru. And find a go-to stats person, that is incredibly helpful for research or write yourself some grants to get some, some statistic help. Uh, if you, you need some in that area, I found that very beneficial. Submit to internal grants. A lot of universities, internal grants, they will you know give out, I know at least our university is incredibly supportive with internal grants. Submit those. Uh, especially your first few years, you're in that honeymoon phase, they're, they're likely to say yes. Um, and that's a good point too early, your first few years, they're likely to say yes, if you have some requests. Right. Uh, I like so to say they're in the honeymoon stage. <laughs> so they'll, they'll give you that, right. From a teaching standpoint, sit in on others who are highly respected and good teachers. I cannot tell you how impactful it was to sit in on Barry's classes. I learned so much about um, discussions and uh, Barry does an amazing job with groups. He puts the students in the groups for the whole semester and that little cohort depends on each other. They exchange phone numbers and you know this group, not only this semester, but many times well into the future, like stay connected. Um, so I, I found that incredibly beneficial to watch other well-respected good teachers um, and then from service, careful about extending yourself early in your career with too many uh, committees, probably know this one from experience, <laughs> and ask your mentor, what are some good committees to get on? Barry was incredibly helpful at Long Beach State advising me, we're going to put you in this committee, don't do that committee because it could really be a time suck and maybe you're just not ready because you don't have the expertise yet to really help that committee out. Um, so be aware something. of that. Something on that too, I think as APE professors and higher ed people, I think we get pulled into a lot of things. And I even Barry mentioned this maybe a little bit about just being the disability person, but also right. there's, there's almost service wise, and even it can right. go into scholarship too, because someone wants somebody with a disability there's so many people kind of pulling at you sometimes to ask for your, you know, your time. Um, and I think that is a different, especially as an early, a new person, you don't, you're excited, like you said, a honeymoon phase and you get asked to do a lot, you know, because you are an N of one or there's, you're the only person in the state or, you know, so you're getting asked all the time to be a guest speaker, to be um, on a podcast, to, uh, to do that, to be on a committee. And, um, you know, until I just recently became a parent, 
and especially now with two, um, I didn't really respect my time with that stuff. And, you know, it, I think it's, that's a difficult process for a new faculty. Let me jump in, Scott, because yeah. one of the things that I think really is a challenge in the AP's profession is that how much service we do has hurt us scholarship wise, because we could, I, I, personally, I, I could spend all my time doing service. Like, I don't know how many calls I would get to do service all over, uh, you know, disability Probably. groups all over the city of, of LA County and Orange County. And I mean, I could just spend all my time doing that. And, and sometimes you have to say, no, I have a saying, what you do, if you commit to something, you need to do it well, you need to do it correctly. And so um, sometimes you have to say no. And, and uh, even though it's difficult, I want to, you know, help anybody I can, you know, from a community service wise, but um, you could spend all your time doing that. And I think that's really challenged our profession sometimes because a lot of us get so hung up on doing that uh, scholarship takes a back seat or um, you're teaching. And so you have to have a balance of those those three things. And, and you really should look at how you're spending your time. You should sometimes reflect on how am I spending my time? And, and um, am I saying yes to everything? Am I overextending myself to the point where I'm not even in the moment? I'm just checking things off and I'm moving from thing to thing. And I kind of talked to Melissa about that because early in my career, I just kept, I, I never was in the moment. I just, you know, I'd have these big milestones and I wouldn't even enjoy them. You know, uh, and I, I want, I think looking back, you know, I, I want Melissa or young faculty to enjoy their, their career. It's also hard to be reflective. I think when you're, right. when you're so busy, because you have to, yes. if you're not, that's something I've just recently, I think I've gotten some handle on is actually thinking, okay, I taught this lesson. What, like, you know, going through, uh, how do I want to do that differently? When I write an article, what would I, you know, actually reflecting on it and not just looking at everything as like a, as you said, a check mark, you know, that I right. got it done and whatever. Yeah, what's ironic is we really stress to our students to reflect on their their lessons and their teaching. And that's yeah. like one of the number one things you can do to be an effective teacher. And I think as a, as a faculty member, you need to do that. And I, I tended to do that a lot while I was out running. You know, I would reflect or um, I never walked out of a lecture without saying to myself, OK, how could I have done that differently or what was effective about that? What could I change about that? Um, you know, what did I learn from that? And I think, you know, reflection and to me, a really good time to reflect is like in August or or uh, July and say, OK, what are my goals? To me, our New Year's is August, like and we're setting our goals up for the next year. Like I always had this next coming school year, here are five things I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be putting this conference on. I'm going to write this paper. I'm going to finish up this, you know, this book, you know, those kinds of things here. Are, I got this search I'm going to run. That's going to take a lot of time, you know, or maybe you have some life situation, you know, uh, and all of a sudden, like there was a, a couple of years where my, there was a year when my mom was, you know, I had to bring her out to California and I, it was hard to get anything done, you know? And so sometimes life gets in the way, you know, and you got to accept that or, you know, having children is good too, because then you realize sometimes what's, what's important. 
They they, you know? they make you reflect on stuff. <laughs> I think they, do. they make you more reflective, but, more tired. So. But I would say it's really critical for young faculty to reflect and to reflect not only short term but long term and take time and maybe it's through exercise, you know, and exercising is important and just take time for yourself. Um, I was, you know, and also if you're going to write, uh, the best tip I could give you is carve out a sacred time. Like there was a certain time that I, I would get up every morning around 5.30, quarter to six, and I would write for a couple hours or an hour and a half and, you know, type of thing. And, and I'm a morning person. Not everybody is, you know, but that's my time to write because I felt like once I got on campus, I'm not going to get a lot done, you know, uh, as far as like big think tank, good reflection time, you know, write from an out, you know, there's a number of things you could talk about as far as scholarship and writing from an outline and, you know, that type of thing. But carving out sacred time to write is, is really important because you know your schedule. And if, if Tuesday, Thursday is your heavy teaching time, that's not a good time to write. Uh, no, I think when people have told me that they find 20 minutes to write every day, I go, 20 minutes, I can't even like really look at the paper. Get started. Um, well, you know, you know, an hour to look at a paper. Uh, let, me, let me talk about that because very yeah. early in my career, like I went to a professional development uh, conference. And I went to a professional development thing on campus at CSU Long Beach. And the person sits us down. And I was one of these guys that I need an hour to even like get in the groove, you know, type of person. And I would have these binge writing sessions. Sometimes I'd write, you know, on Saturday all day, you know, to the point where I'd be friggin' dizzy. And so he says, okay, everybody, we're going to sit down and you're going to write for 15 minutes. And I went 15 minutes. It takes me that long just to find like my, you know, turn my computer on and turn it. Yeah. And he started talking about binge writing. And, and then he talked about, take what you wrote the day before, spend about five minutes looking at that, massaging it, and then going to the next thing. And uh, that you shouldn't get, and so I started like getting away from binge writing. And I started getting into this, like, I'm gonna write every morning, I'm gonna warm up with what I wrote the night before, the day before, and then I'm gonna write uh, something in a, and maybe I only have 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. And it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was. And, and then sometimes I had more time and I, if I'm in a groove, I just keep writing. But I think that uh, I was a real big believer, like 20 minutes, no way. And, you know, so, and, and this person went on to be, he left Long Beach, wrote a book about this whole writing process, went to Harvard, worked with their professional development team. So he knew a couple of things. For sure. I, I have a hard time. I think, whatever, there's different phases of the writing, getting into the writing right. process. I think the initial writing process to me, oh yeah, is often usually the one that I'm binge writing and then I'm going through. I, my idea is always get something on the paper and then you refine it a little, you know, a lot. Um, so a lot like the massaging, I think I can do 15, 20, 30 minutes at a time, right. but it's the initial one where I, I feel like I have to, cause I definitely have done that where I'm doing it a lot less, but you know, especially before kids, I mean, I would spend eight hours sometimes on a paper in a day. Yeah. It's Getting crazy. it on the computer the yeah. first time is hard, but like, sometimes I just say, all right, just get it on, even though it looks like junior high level, 
just get it on the computer and then we'll work on it and we'll massage it. One of the things I went, like I went on and on about, Melissa and I see sometimes with junior faculty, they work really fast and they don't massage stuff enough. And, and um, I think that, you know, you need to really like work it and work it and work and then, and then go back to it. And then sometimes like uh, go out for a run and think or work out and think about it. And, and, and sometimes two days later, it, it, it looks very differently or, or your thought process is very different than it was you know, sometimes I like to just sit on something for three or four days and let it just sort of percolate in my mind and think about it, you know? Um, okay, I want, so wrapping up a little bit, I, I want to hit one question that we didn't really kind of plan for. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about maybe the We mentor. didn't plan for, all right, yeah. no, that's great. <laughs> uh -oh. So there's, um, at TWU, I think it was my last year. So Melissa, I think you missed her. I can't remember her name. But she did her PhD on, uh, and this, this stuck with me quite a bit, like the idea, and I re read one of her articles. She did her PhD on um, the MBA front office, and she interviewed women about um, the mentory mentor relationship that they received. And, um, you know, obviously that, that's a, a problem in their field is that it's mostly white male dominated, right? And male especially dominated. And I, I, one of the things, you know, from talking to her and reading her stuff that was interesting about the mentor-mentee relationship is that people have a conscious and a, subcon or a subconscious, I think, way of people wanting to mentor people that they, that they think looks like them or they mm -hmm. see themselves in. And, you know, I think, you know, that's an issue in our field is that we have a lot of, you know, we're a very white-dominated field and um, you know, maybe there's gender things in there too, and, and all these other uh, pieces. And I guess in a way, um, obviously with, you know, you're hiring one person right now, and we're talking about that, but when we're talking about maybe mentoring people, I, I guess, have you put any thought into, I don't know, how, how do we kind of mentor a larger group of people um, that maybe just don't look just like ourselves? Or is that something that has ever come into your thoughts at all? Well, I actually listened uh, about a year ago to a podcast that talked about that very thing and how a lot of people, like you said, don't feel comfortable mentoring somebody that doesn't look like them. And sometimes, you know, I, I've got to be conscious of, for example, uh, their background, how they grew up, where they're coming from. I think one of the unique things about adaptive PE from a more specific standpoint, is you could make this argument with diversity and how we, you know, basically universal design for learning and, and understanding diversity and understanding um, lots of groups and where they're coming from. And so I try to re respect those things. Um, I also think like one of the best things to do is to be, just be transparent about, about things and say, you know, and I understand that I can't, uh, uh, appreciate and understand everything uh, about that person um, and how they were, you know, their background and how they were trained and whatever. Um, I don't know. I was fortunate. My father was in the Navy. We moved around. We, we, we lived in a lot of different places and I had to connect with people. And I think through sport, you have to connect with people and stuff. Um, I mean, uh, I think that's important, but just respecting where they're 
they're coming from. And I think it's really critical that we, you know, people with diverse backgrounds that we really mentor and, and work with them. And maybe they feel more comfortable being mentored from somebody that has a similar background. Yeah. But I think the problem you is, know? And this is what right. seems funny to me is basically when everyone on the top is one right, thing, it's right, is what yeah. how do we make the like and that's the way that people really end up growing and, and yeah. you know working up the ranks is through mentorship. So yeah. if we're yeah. only mentoring people that look like us, you know, mm -hmm. that's it's just perpetuating the problem of, of a lack. And you know, and that's an issue, Nash. That's an yeah. that's coming out everywhere, that's coming out in the NFL right now, you know. And um so I think. You know, I think it in some ways, in it, because of our background in adaptive PE and diversity, and and appreciating that, and most people that I know in adaptive PE are, have a lot of empathy, you know, and I think that's critical. And understanding where these people are coming from, and appreciating that, and you know, just being genuine, just being transparent, and saying, "Hey, let's work together. Let's, how can we?" How can you be, how can I help you be successful? You know, as I think is, is uh, one way to do that and making a connection with that person, you know? I mean, even though, you know, Melissa and I, I mean, we're both white, but we're, we're different backgrounds, different, you know, understanding of, of things, uh, you know, 30 year difference, but we have, what do we have in common is this, you know, a, adaptive PE, love of exercise, sport, you know, physical education, we have a connection, you know, to me, you know, the most critical thing you can do is, is how do you connect with people? I had to learn that pretty early because every three years we were moving, you know, because uh, my father was in the Navy and we'd move every three years and I had to, now I got to make new friends and connect, so. Well, what do you think, time, Melissa, as a, as a female, yeah. what, what do you think as a, as a woman and a female? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. The, you love to say you've got to connect before you direct, right? right? That's one of Barry's famous sayings. I absolutely agree. Um, provide opportunity, you know, for, for mentees with, you know, diverse backgrounds whether it's through, you know, grant opportunities, funding opportunities. I, you know, I know we try to write um, student grants in the summer for research and try to you know, pinpoint ethnically diverse students. Um, consider, we, we also have student assistants that help us out. And, you know, we try to balance, you know, gender opportunities, um, ethnic background opportunities. You know, so you want to try to take all those things into consideration. Um, yeah. I'd really like to reinforce that because when I first came to Long Beach, like in 1988, my the first few cohorts, they were all female, they were all white, they were all were from Orange County, and I went, wow, you know, like some of these people are going to end up teaching in LA Unified School District, which is very diverse, and I need to go out and I, you know, look at people in the department and recruit. And I, I try to always recruit people of, of color, you know, which is, is not easy sometimes. And, and it's gotten a lot better. And most of our kids are first generation. I have a, that's important to me because I was a first generation graduate, you yeah. know, of, of my family. And, and, and I really enjoy that about Long Beach State. A lot of these kids are first generation. 
and yeah, when they come a lot of times students kinesiology students will come and observe like our after school program and when they do we might try to pair them up with you know someone who might also be latinx and then that way in a first gen and maybe a female and then they can connect on that and find that person as uh you know someone to look up to in the program because I, I do think that you know that can help uh with recruiting so yeah. You know, yeah, more things well, to consider. I know that was. Yeah, I, I, I really want to stress that because what we used our practicums as recruiting tools, and right. I would just connect them with another student. Like I would tell them how great the program is, and I'd say, "Hey, you know, I've watched you teach. You're pretty good at this. You should do this." And sometimes I would believe in them before they even believed in themselves. You know, right. but the real selling point is when they talk to a peer, and they connect with that that peer because. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I know, I know I threw out a, a curveball there. That's like a little bit, you know, uh, uh, a hard one to, you know, cause that's obviously a problem that, as you said, that's a challenge. It's, it's everywhere. And it's, it, yeah. it, there's not a, a simple solution to it, but it's something I think at a minimum we need to acknowledge, you know, because it is a subconscious thing, I think oftentimes. So, so something that's not on the forefront of our thoughts and it just ends up happening. Sure. Um, and as the verse says, Oh, um, as diverse as Long Beach State is. Go ahead, Melissa. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was say when being meant find multiple mentors who okay. you know are 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 diverse, male, female, ethnically diverse. I think that's important too to help shape your perspective. Think about what social media, like news that you are are following, and make sure that you are following a diverse number of individuals so you're you know, not always following the same type of people. So you're hearing from um, broad audiences. Yeah, so different, you can have different mentors for different needs is, is mm -hmm. another thing. And, and um, but also like when I was running the search at CSU Long Beach, they bring the diversity brings you in and you look at even as diverse as Southern California is, we still have a large white, population of professors you know and we're and we have a very diverse you know collection of, of students and so you just you know it starts with they have to get phds they have you know the, there's just a whole it's a complex question it's multi-layered yeah. there, there's a lot of issues here that sometimes are out of your control um and you're running a search and there aren't people applying that are diverse yeah. you know well, um, I'm, I'm going to wrap up our conversation. I'm, you know what? I, I think it just as a wrap up, though, I'd like to hear just kind of like maybe just both of your most important points about or, or tips on the mentor E and mentor relationship. I would say to me, like, it's just being genuine, being transparent, um, being and connect with that person. And so it has to start first, maybe informally, like just going to lunch or going to coffee or just, you know, like uh, Melissa and trusting each other and knowing that if I give her feedback, it's constructive and it's from, it's from a good place and it's from the heart, that, that type of thing. Um, I think, you know, first you got to connect, but also not being afraid to eventually when you have that trust and connection is um, giving that person feedback and saying, hey, call me. Like I just spent um, Friday afternoon, an hour with Amanda Young 
because she's putting her RTP narrative together. And I said, you know, call me anytime, you know, and uh, uh, um, I want to help you. And I'm here, you know, and, and sometimes that's, you know, some people just are afraid to, um, you know, oh, geez, I don't know, like reach out, but let people know, hey, reach out. Um, and, and I think that a senior faculty has that wisdom where here are the here are the people you can um, that can help you. And I can tell um, a junior faculty in one in one email how to get something where it would take her seven or eight emails. I think that's important. And also write some things down. Like if you can't be there or you retire, have it on paper and say, here's what what you need to do if you're going to have this on-campus practicum. Here's here's like some um, ways that you could be involved in scholarship. Uh, one of the things that Amanda and I talked a lot about, what are, you know, what's her research interest with, you know, doing family uh, involvement with physical activity and, and here are some organizations to get involved with in Southern California where maybe you could do that or your, your pra our practicums can help you with that. She's a good match for our department, you know, and our thing, all of those things we've been talking about. You know, the idea of matching up and, and here are some things maybe you haven't thought about. You know? Yeah, I, I think ultimately mentorship is it's a friendship. Yeah. <laughs> really, when you boil it down, that it's a connection, it's a friendship. It's, you know, with any friendship, the ability to give, the ability to take when needed. Um, you know, and so you need to foster that relationship like a friendship that yeah. makes sure you you know, thank you, please drop off a, a pack of Guinness every now and again when Barry's <laughs> gone above and beyond of, of helpfulness. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so and, I, and Yeah, like I'm, I'm generally like when Melissa bought a house, I was generally happy for her, you know, and, and I want her to be successful, you know, and, and it's just fun to watch her grow. And, uh, knowing that the program will be in, is, is gonna be in good standing for a number of years. You know, that, that's just, it's just fun to watch that. And, you know, like I said, like when you help others, you, the reality is you just feel better about yourself, you know? Absolutely. Well, thank you both. I think this was a really yeah. good conversation. I think, I think we hit a lot of points and I'm really hoping that some young faculty and or up and coming people listen to this and get a better understanding. Thank you.